This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Ryan Smith has charted his own course to become one of the great entrepreneurial success stories of our time. In 1978, Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots, imported six pairs of sheepskin boots from Australia with a dream to build a business where every American would eventually be wearing the product. That is how one of the world's most recognizable brands began and sales of Ugg products have exceeded a billion dollars in each of the past five years. Today, Brian enjoys guiding entrepreneurs and business professionals on their journey to success by sharing lessons he learned while building the Ugg brand. His compelling book, The Birth of a Brand, details multiple stories about his entrepreneurial and executive journey and from which both seasoned and beginning executives can derive great insight. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me today on The Voice of Leadership and on Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Hi, Dr. Karen. Thanks so much for having me. I am delighted to have you, especially someone as seasoned as you are, having gone through the School of Hard Knocks and learned along the way how to build a really successful business. And I know that you have lots of insights to share with the people in my community. Sure, I'd love to. Well, wonderful. So I'm going to just jump right in. First of all, let me just say this. I know that you are Australian. You were born and raised there. So how is it that you got this notion or idea to bring sheepskin boots to America and especially to the California surfing community as opposed to out here in Colorado in the snow area where I live or Minnesota or into the Northeast or someplace like that. Yes, it doesn't seem natural, does it? I I was an accountant. for. It took 10 years of, of studying to graduate as a CPA, which is, you know, I, and I quit the same day I graduated because I really didn't like being an accountant in that industry. At the time, I, I, I was quite uh, into uh, meditation and spiritual practices. And, and I remember meditating one morning thinking, you know, and I got this this feeling that, oh, my God, all the big trends are coming out of California. And I've always been one to follow that intuition that comes through because I believe it comes from outside. So I, I thought, oh, all you know, waterbeds and Levi jeans and all the surf brands are coming out of California. I'm going to go to California and find the next big thing to bring back to Australia. So that's how... You know, I never intended to do uh, Ugg boots. I went there looking for something, anything completely different, right? But it was four or five months in California, and I I spent most of my time surfing up at Malibu because I'd been a surfer since a little kid. And it was about October or November. The water was getting really chilly and the wind was cold. And after the surfing there with my friend, I was pulling on my sheepskin boots that I'd brought from Australia and I just got this massive dose of goosebumps and I went, oh, my God. And I turned to Doug and I said, Doug, one in two people in Australia own a pair of sheepskin footwear and there's none in America. We are going to be instant millionaires. <laughs> Let's go into business. And so that, that was the story of how Ugg was like birthed. You know, the conception happened on the beach and then we called up, you know, if we, we did a little research on manufacturers and, you know, put an order in for six pairs of samples. And that was like the birth of UGG. And then the rest was just all the, the, the horror stories of growing the business. Well, yes, there are lots of horror stories along the way in growing any business. And one yeah. of the things I would certainly say in your case is that it was not a straight line function. It wasn't an overnight yeah. journey to success. There were a number of setbacks. There were naysayers along the way. And you mentioned that you had sort of like a spiritual epiphany even on the front end of it. So how did you end up sustaining the faith 
to keep going given all various setbacks yeah. that you experienced? I think faith was probably the most important feature of, of my life for 20 years because <laughs> there were so many signs saying that you should, even my friends were going, no, you're crazy, sheepskin in California, that'll never work, right? But Australia's climate is identical to uh, California. So that was what I kept coming back to. It kept sustaining me was that, look, they're all over Australia it's not the product's problem, it's me. There's something I'm not doing to not make this successful, right? And so, you know, we, we ordered, you know, we, we went to a bunch of shoe stores and they shut us out completely like you're crazy. But I noticed all my friends at Malibu were thinking it was a fabulous product. And, and, and it struck me that so many California surfers had been to Australia on their surf trips and brought four or five pairs of boots back for their buddies. So within that little market, it was very, very popular. So we started selling to the surf shops. And initially it was like, Oh my God, you're, you're going to make a fortune. You know, every store owner we went to thought we were going to make a fortune because they all owned a pair. And, and so that emboldened us to, to buy 500 pairs from this manufacturer. We, we raised about $20,000, which in today's money is about 80,000. And, uh, we ordered 500 pairs and they arrived. And when we went back to the surf shops, we were met with, well, yeah, you're going to do fantastic, but we couldn't sell them in our store because we just sell surfboards and trunks and flip-flops, you know, and they're way too expensive. You should go to the shoe stores, right? So here we were with our big ideas, my friend Doug and I, and after going to every single surf shop, we ended up tallying up our first delivery order for, you know, for the year, which was our years uh, sales it was 28 pairs just happened to be exactly a thousand dollars you know and we'd we'd bought 500 pairs in for how successful we were going to be that's just amazing in and of itself that you know you were quite optimistic let's say at the beginning oh, yeah. and then reality was showing a different story yet at the same time i would say this you kept getting this infusion of people saying oh this is a great concept you're going to make a lot of money wasn't manifesting at the time however right. everybody was talking about it which kind of makes me think about this concept you often talk about that concept of how you can't give birth to an adult you've right. got to go through these stages that include the infancy the toddler years and just like humans businesses go through phases and stages so say a little bit about that concept and how it sure. applies to what you learned growing UG. sure uh, after i sold the UG company which was about 20 years later i, I ended up writing a book about the process because I'd kept all of the records for 20 years. And uh, the theme of my book is that you can't give birth to adults, right? You know, if you look at the stock exchange page on the Wall Street Journal, every business there started with someone conceiving the idea and taking the first action, which is giving the birth, right? So my birth of UG was buying six pairs of samples. And then every business just lies there and it lies there and entrepreneurs you know they, they, they when they had that first aha and they take the first action they're going to set the world on fire and everybody's going to beat a door to them well well it never happens that way it just lies there and there's that's okay because an infant can't get up and go to college right it has yeah. to be an infant and as long as you keep feeding it and changing the diapers you know you'll get a giggle now and again but uh, eventually it'll start toddling and that's a really exciting phase because you know the first magazines are writing articles about you and your true believer friends are going out telling all their friends about it and then you start getting orders and it takes on a bit of a life and that quite quickly goes into the youth phase which is the best because in youth you've got consistent productions working orders and sales are coming in admin is working the warehouse and shipping is working. everything's clicking and you can run a 20 30 million dollar company in that that youth phase but if it's a really great product or a really great service you're going to hit the teenage years and do you recall when you were a teenager 
you know, you wanted to be at every party on a Saturday night. Well, it's the same in business. You you want to be in every major trade show and you want to be in every major, you know, mass distributor. And it's like suicide if you go too fast in that period and you'll lose control completely. Uh, but then eventually, the, you know, the maturity comes in, the accountants put all the controls in. So that's a natural life cycle. And the sad part is that I see so many entrepreneurs who have that aha and I'm going to be famous and then they hit the infancy and many, many, many of them just go, ah, oh, it's not going to work. I'll give up. They don't realize it. That's just a natural part of the growth cycle. It's just like with your babies you're raising at home. You don't That's give right. up on the baby because they can't get out of the crib by themselves. Or <laughs> That's exactly thing. right. Yeah, You keep nurturing it and yeah. however long it takes in the baby phase, you go through it. And I think part of it is just knowing that that's the expectation. If you don't know this, it can be frightening and you can think, oh, this is not a good idea. It's over that's before right. it even starts, if you will. So yeah. I think that's part of it. So Brian, your business went through these cycles and, and it took some years to get to the place where you could really see the benefit and the growth and you continued along the way. There are other businesses that appear, they appear to be overnight successes. So maybe somebody starts out with the concept, a year later, they're already into into the multi-millions. What would you say about those businesses? Are they going through those cycles just more rapidly? Or do you think they've maybe skipped something that they have to get back to later? What's your observation? Yeah, it'd, it'd be interesting for me to see a business that went into the millions in a year that that would be a bit of a stretch but the thing is with today's technology like back when i was doing this if it was a product you know you had to buy the product have it manufactured bring it in sort it out ship it out you know individually as as to what the customers wanted and that was a long process and then to get them to buy you had to do a long advertising process which was taking photographs having them taken to a printer and then, you know, print ads done. That, that, you know, it took like a month to do an, a, one advertisement. Well, with technology today, you, you can take a photo and you have an instant web page. If you're, if you're dealing in a product that is electronic, like, like software program or something you can sell as a service, those things you can go very, very quickly on, right? You can, as, as long as there's no warehousing and product storage but if it's electronic and you and somebody pays 59.95 and you go click they got it then you can scale a business into the millions very very rapidly but those those opportunities aren't everywhere and if anyone thinks they can put a you know go into business online with a new bottle of vitamins right they're gonna the, the more successful they get the more trouble they're going to get into because you can't just ramp production from nothing to maximum. And that's why businesses take 10, 15 years to really get into the billions. You know, it's, it's almost impossible for a company to get into a billion like overnight. You know, you're really bringing up something important, which is uh, what I, it's kind of the infrastructure that a business needs if it's going to continue to grow and continue to succeed. Yeah. And you're saying, yeah, you might get the orders and you might have the business in that sense. You may not be able to fulfill them if you have not built the infrastructure to support yeah. the level of business that you've got. Yeah. And you could take that one step further where you, your sales are unbelievable. Your marketing is so compelling. And I believe me, I bought stuff on the internet that, that when I got the product, I go, I should never have fallen for this. Right. But, you know, then if, the customers aren't satisfied and they want to return it, then, you know, where's your infrastructure then? How many customer service people do you have to take the re refunds and and all of the problems and, and respond to all of the, the issues that come with it? it it's not, it, it seems like an easy business uh, by, the, by the promoters who want you to buy the product. But man, when you're in the actual business itself, it, it, it takes quite a, a, a group of people to even take a company to $1 million in sales. Absolutely. And I know one of the things that you experienced in your business is what I would call uh, the need for 
capital along the way. And especially because you had a product, you had to purchase inventory. And so a lot of fledgling companies have to deal with this. They have to advertise, market the company, just like you're saying. So in your case, how did you find investors and what were some of the ups and downs that you ran into with the investors along the way? Yeah, that was probably my worst facet of of knowledge. (laughs) I was an accountant. I was a chartered accountant with a CPA, but I didn't understand finance. And it's a different animal. Finance is forecasting what cash flow you're going to need. Accounting is what happened last year. I'll do all the numbers. I'll tell you if you made a profit or not, right? And so they're two very different animals. And I didn't understand finance. So when I was, you know, thinking, okay, we just sold a million dollars worth of product and I'm broke. What's the solution? Oh, I'll sell $2 million worth of product next year and then I'll have tons of money. But the reality is it costs twice as much to bring in the extra inventory and the extra staff and the extra shipping and all that. And so at the end of $2 million worth of sales, you've you got less money than when you did a $1 million in sales. And so I never really understood that process until oh, 10 or 12 years into the business. So I was always at the whim of, because I was doubling, I was extremely good in sales and marketing, right? So I could do trade shows, I could do, I could sell like crazy. But the more we sold, the bigger the problem was getting in in, um, inventory. And so I had to, I started with a small investor. And then when I needed twice as much product, he couldn't afford it. So I had to get a bigger investor and that guy didn't want the original one. So I I had to buy the original investor out and then we're on for the next level. And then we got too big for that guy. And so you can extrapolate that through three or four investment rounds. And it was not a pretty sight. Um, But my faith, again, it always came back to my faith that one in two Australians has some sort of sheepskin footwear. It's not the problem of the product. It's me. I'm, I'm not doing something that needs to make this successful in America. You know, I love that because you were going back to, in essence, the initial vision of it. And you yeah. knew the vision still had merit, that it still had worth. So the how-to, you have to figure out as you go along, you yeah. didn't abandon the vision. Maybe how you do it, the way you approach it, and the way you go about it. So if you dial back again, thinking about these investors, what's maybe a nugget or two that you learned about getting investors that you could share with people today that might help them? Sure. The uh, the one thing I know about investors now that I didn't know then <laughs> is that every entrepreneur has got this bus that they've built and it's just rocketing along and they want investors to jump on the bus. Hey, we're going to make millions. Come on, get on the bus, right? What they don't realize, and I never did at the time, is the investors want to know, how do I get off the bus, right? With my capital intact, hopefully with a profit and hopefully having had a good time with you guys, right? But the entrepreneur never sees that. They, they're, never, they're never forecasting out front far enough to see where the exit's going to be or or the exit's going to be unrealistic for investors coming in. So the game with investors is like a dance, right? You have to be attractive enough for them to want to come out on the floor and dance with you, but they've got to be able to have a quick release if they want to get out and things aren't, you don't know the steps, right? If you don't, if you start stumbling over your steps and don't understand them, then they're going to start to wonder, whoa, how do I get off this dance floor? So I was never very good at it. I had a series of investors that, you know, got bigger and bigger. And uh, eventually I was lucky enough to, well, I'll say lucky. I'm going to tell you a story. This is a two or three minute story. I got to the point where I had these three new investors uh, had come into the business. They were going to handle all the shipping and warehouse duties. And I was just going to be on the road selling because I'd become a really good salesman by now. So we had Neil, Paul and Joe, and, and we we're all going to share the company 25% each. And 
the one proviso in the deal was that I didn't actually get my 25% certificate issued until I finished up a little trademark lawsuit that I was having with a company called UGHS. So we all went into the deal and signed up and moved everything up to Anaheim where their warehouse and distribution was. And I went on the road and the very first like store that I went into was a good friend of mine at Huntington Surf and Sport. And, and I walked in the door and he said, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the company. I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning. They said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you're kidding me. They said that. And I got out of there and I went next door to the Shell gas station because this is before cell phones, you know, and I called up Neil at Anaheim and go, Neil, what are you telling people? And he says, what do you mean? So you're saying I don't own the company. He says, well, well, you don't, you know, you don't get your stock issue. And I go, yes, I do. You're my three new partners. And he says, well, you don't get your stock issue. And I just hung up. I drove back to San Diego where I lived and I pulled out the contract and I read it and I reread it and I go, oh, my God. Technically, I'm not an owner of the company. And I went into this huge depression and for three or four days I just moped around the house and uh, I didn't speak to anybody outside except you know, my wife who was there. And uh, I think it was on the third or fourth night I was lying on my back on the living room floor watching TV and, and the, you know, the, I clicked the television off because the show ended and, and I rolled over on my stomach and I got up on my hands and knees and started crawling towards the bedroom. And my wife, Laura, just looked at me and she, she's a really quiet person. She just looked at me and said, you get up now and walk to bed like a man. And she scared the heck out of me. <laughs> and the weird thing is, though, as I got up off the floor, it was like my head was poking out the top of a big fog. And I started to think, oh, my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin business, you know. And that night I slept like a baby. And the next morning I was back in, in pretty good spirits again, and so I had breakfast and, and I started meditating and, you know, just praying to God going, okay, God, what, what can I do with my life, you know? Will I do real estate? No. Business broker, maybe. Accounting, never. And then I got this dash of goosebumps you know, which I do when I get this inspiration. And it was like, oh, my God, I've come to love sales, right? Now, what can I sell? And that's when I got the goosebumps and I thought, oh, my God, Ugg boots, you know. I'd love to get a pair of Ugg boots on everybody in America. So I called up the guys at Anaheim and I said, look, I may never own the company, but I just want to get a, you know, Ugg boots on everybody in America. So let me come back. I'm going to go on the road, but promise me you won't tell anybody that I sold the company, right? Because I'm going to own it again when I get my 25% of stock, right? So, you know, I went on the road uh, and got back a month later and Neil handed me an envelope. It was a check for $5,000. And that was the first money I'd ever pulled out of the company, right? And the next month I got back a check for 10000 another check for 10000 And the philosophical lesson here is that nearly always your most disappointing disappointments will become your greatest blessings, right? And I say this from the stage, you know, and I can have an audience of four or 500 people and I say, you know, raise your hand if sometime in the last 12 months something happened in your personal life or your business life that at the time you thought was the greatest disaster and now you look back and think, thank God that happened. And I promise you 80% of the audience puts their hands up, you know, so it's a very powerful piece of philosophy. This is such a compelling story and it reminds me of several things. Sometimes what we don't know can get in our way. So when you're making these agreements, I say for the investors, you didn't realize what the true implications of that would be that you would no longer own the company technically. And yeah. and if you had known that, you could have had that agreement up front about them not telling Ab people that you don't own yeah. or whatever it is. So that was kind of a shock. And then, you know, just this whole notion of planning the exits. 
in relationships and situations and partnerships like this as well, thinking about what an exit might look like and the different ways people can exit so that you are also agreed to it on that front end, what that looks like. And then, I mean, that day you were crawling <laughs> to bed, to bed, so to speak. It's the realization of what have I now developed as a core skill? And I know you didn't have this core skill at the beginning, the sales thing. You were kind That's of right, afraid of yeah. it, but you had developed it. You had become a great salesman and you still believed in the vision to say, I'm still going to sell these boots to get them on every person yeah. in America. So it's going back to the basics again, going back to the, the, the fundamentals. The vision, the vision and the faith, along with keeping that vision. If you look, just I've just told a couple of little stories already. You, you, you know, I could have given up after selling 28 pairs, right? Oh, of course. It, right? After I learned I lost the company, I could have just walked away from that. And I didn't. Now, here's the kicker to that story. So for the next three years, I was on the road traveling all across the country. We had 30 sales reps and each rep, you know, when I'd fly into Oklahoma, for instance, I'd, the rep had to have t t 10 best retail accounts and we'd go visit them all. So for three years, every year I was visiting 300 retailers across the country. So I was making friends all across the country and uh, making a lot of money and uh, – in that three-year period, Neil bought Paul and Joe out, so he owned 100% of the company. And then in the fourth year, we were just entering the fourth year with him, he was in a motocross race and had a massive heart attack and died, right? And before that had happened, we, you know, he'd seen how good I was for the company and now he bought the other two out. I'd finished the lawsuit. He he called up the lawyers to come in and issue my 25% of stock like the following Wednesday. And over the weekend, he died, right? And we'd taken out life insurance policies on each other and bought company cars and everything. So fast forward, I promised his widow, who she, she'd never stepped foot inside the business. And I said, look, I, I'll do everything I can to try and keep it alive and figure out where we're at because I hadn't been inside the business for three years, right? And so I had to try and figure out where everything was at and keep it alive for the year. And then I just managed to, my supplier abandoned me and brought on a new distributor for America because he didn't think I'd pull it off. And I was able to get alternative product in and save the brand. We didn't, you know, it was, it was a mess, but we saved it. And here's the kicker. Between Christmas and New Year, two, two things happen, right? One, the life insurance company called up and said, hey, we got this thing on the books. We want to clear it off before December 31. Can you come up to L.A.? So my attorney and, and I went up to L.A. and we ended up settling on the lawsuit or, you know, the, the life insurance policy. And it was just enough money to buy the business back 100% from his widow plus give her all the profits for the year or full price for all of the assets and everything. So she was, instead of being left destitute, now had a pretty good nest egg for her life. I owned the company 100% again. I mean, completely broke. I had no money because we gave it all to his widow, but I owned the company 100% again and was able to stay in business. It's so interesting what you've already shared because okay. I'll put it this way and I'll put it in sort of the language I might use is when God has something for you, even with the setbacks and other people seeming to take over, it comes back to you. And this story to me is such a profound example of how things come back to you. Yeah. you will. I mean, it's just amazing to me. It couldn't be rested away, even if they tried to. <laughs> you know? I know. That's and, what I love about this story. Now, there's something else I also want to insert in, because I think I know where you're going, but I want to insert this thing in because it's such an important beast. You were talking about that lawsuit that you had, and, and this is in the kind of the rubric of what do you do with competitors? Because you were not the only person from Australia who had yeah. this notion that they somehow wanted to get in on the market and sell these sheepskin boots in America. And I'm thinking about one woman competitor in particular. Yes. And tell us a little bit about that story because 
you learned some things there too about how to deal with competition. So talk about yep. that. Yeah. The interesting thing with uh, Ag is that you can't really patent a shoe because like every design has been thought of for the last two or 3,000 years, right, for shoes. Uh, so it's very hard to patent something that's not like a technical climbing boot or something. The colours and the styles, I'm going to give you the answer and then support it, right? Within my company, I developed the mantra with every one of our sales staff and all the design people and the technical people, okay, let's get out front first and then run faster, right? And the reason I came up with that is that I noticed that, like, we'd put all – I had the creativity for new colours and styles, so I would work with the manufacturers in Australia and, and I would get the samples in and I'd put them out on the, on the trade show tables, right? And I'd notice every year that there's these Japanese coming along with cameras and other, you know, Americans coming along with cameras and they're photographing all the stuff. And I knew that, okay, next trade show, they're going to have everything on this table. They're going to have copied it, right? So I would get with my design team and we'd go away and we'd think of new colours and new styles. And so the next year when we showed up, Sure enough, there's all our last year's product all over the trade shows, but we've got new products, new styles, new colours, and we managed to stay ahead of the competition for like 15 years, just keeping that principle of getting out ahead first and then running faster. I and, love that. I yeah. mean, to me, that is such a huge and important aspect in business. And one of the things I know I share with my clients is the whole notion of what I call creative advantage as opposed to competitive advantage, because in creative advantage, you are doing what others are not doing and what only you can do best in essence, because, you know, a lot of competitors are all about copying, not about true innovating. And what yeah. you're talking about is how innovation makes the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of leads back into that story I was talking about when, you know, we had that competitor come in it was, it was a windsurfing company called Thunderwear and they made wetsuits and gloves and stuff. And so they called their, their boots thugs. They, they were same ones from my factory, my manufacturer, but they just put a label on the back called thugs, right? And so when we went to this fateful trade show in September, you know, the year I was having this, this, this departure of you know, my manufacturer, I had a table which had really crappy product, all last year's stuff, right? And they were showing the uh, Thugs product in the same trade show, right? And that's when I thought, oh my God, you know, we're dead. They're gonna the, the product's so good because I didn't I did I designed it all. Their product is so good compared to what I have out today. But fast forward for two months and. Between Christmas and New Year, the, the second thing that happened is the customs broker screwed up and, and sent 2,000 pairs of, of my Ugg boots to Thunderwear and 4,000 pairs of Thugs to me, right? So I called the guy up and I drove up to San Clemente, which is about 25 minutes away, and we swapped all the product out. And as I was driving back home to San Diego, I was thinking, sort of meditating and thinking, Oh my God, how come we couldn't keep our, our warehouse you know, product in the in inventory for, for 24 hours? Every time we got a shipment, it was gone, right? Retailers were driving down to pick it up and I was shipping other stuff back east. And this had been a frenzy for like three or four months up to December. And I'm driving back home. How, how come we couldn't keep product in the warehouse for 24 hours? And the thugs warehouse was floor to ceiling full of sheepskin boots. And that's when I finally had the realisation, oh, my God, my customers were so loyal to me that they refused to buy the thugs and they could have easily bought them and sold it to their retail, you know, through the retail outlets, but they knew what had happened. And, and remember I was travelling with the sales reps, you know, 30, 30, 30, 30, you know, 300 retailers a year. Well, those guys were the biggest retailers in the country and they all refused to buy the thugs 
because they found out what had happened with this end run behind me. And that's the power of customer service and knowing who, you know, you knowing your customers and the customers knowing you and being able to, you know, have them become loyal when the chips are down. And that, that to me was a, one of the most important lessons of the entire business was, you know, how you treat your customer, how, how you treat your, 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 your purchases. You know, this is such a really critical point that you're sharing right now as well, because by this time you have built the brand and That's you have right. built brand loyalty along the way. And I mentioned that word relationships earlier. You had developed relationships with the, these people. So you were not just a name on a page or some right. abstract concept. They actually knew you as a person. Yeah. And if Dials me back to something else you said, because you, I'm going to quote this. This is something that you learned from one of the big stores. They said, remember to service the mice and respect them as much as you do the elephants while waiting for the elephants to take notice. Was that Sears? That was uh, a group called Montgomery Ward. Oh, Montgomery Wards. That's right. Yes. Yes. And, I remember and that. it was, that was hilarious. Uh, in fact, that's, there were two or three pieces of advice I got from retailers over the 20 year period. That yeah. was one of them, the key ones, because I was feeling like I was a failure. You know, I was getting into surf shops and little sporting goods stores and, and, you know, I had this, this low volume business going in six pairs here, 10 pairs there. And I was, I, I was looking at Nordstrom and Saks and Montgomery Ward and Kinney's and, wondering why why can't I get in these big stores, you know? And I was in the buying office in Chicago at Montgomery Ward and I was I was explaining, hey, why can't you give us a big order? And and he just crossed his arms and he looked back and he says, Hey Brian, don't you get it? We're the elephants. We don't move until the mice are running around under our feet, right? And like instantaneously I got what he meant. I mean, oh my God. I'm chasing the wrong, you know, goals. And, and, and then I came back and I redoubled my efforts on, on making marketing programs for these smaller stores and the surf shops and the ski shops and the retail. And pretty soon the volume and the brand awareness became so great that all the department stores started calling us going, Hey, what are these Uggs? You know, everybody's in our store asking for Uggs. I don't even know what they are, you know? And so. That piece of wisdom from Montgomery Ward was a classic. You know, your your whole story, it's really about lessons like that that you've learned along the way yeah. and little snippets that people said that you took to heart and implemented and made a difference. Maybe give us at least one other of those little snippets that you heard from somebody along the way that made a difference. Okay, I'll give you two but they're related okay? okay so back to the surf shops I'm, I'm trying to figure okay now i've got to make these surf shops i was in one of the shops one day and there was we had four or five pairs of boots up on the shelf and i was you know cleaning them up and this customer walked in and they picked up one of the ugg boots and said hey what are these things like and the store manager goes oh i don't know they you know we've had them for a couple of weeks he said, and the guy says, well, they're really expensive. And he goes, yeah, they're really expensive. And and I was watching this interaction and the guy put the Ugg boot down and then he walked off and looked at some other stuff. I was almost flabbergasted how, how this guy didn't sell him a pair of Ugg boots, right? So I conceived what I called the six-pair stocking plan. This is the most, you know, out of all of the millions of dollars I spent on marketing, this was the most critical one the six pair stocking plan if you will buy six pairs and put them on the shelf i will give a free pair to the manager to wear right so fast forward a month you know a couple of months now i'm in the store again and the guy will you know a customer walks in and picks up the argument what are these like and the customer the manager goes oh my god they're the best things in the world i mean i'm wearing them i mean those are well, they're sort of expensive. Oh, they're not expensive. You'll get you such great value out of it, right? And so that completely spun the entire sales numbers in within every store just by having somebody knowledgeable who had tried them on, right? 
And I'm going to dovetail that into the same year I was at a big trade show in Las Vegas, a ski show, and we'd had three days and no orders, you know, because all the people are from New England and Vale and, you know, all across the snowy areas, and, and they'd look at these sheepskin boots and go, oh, they'll never work for us. We have mud and we have slush and we, we need rubber and we need sorrels, you know. And anyway, this woman came in and I knew she was the she was the owner of like 15 ski shops in New England, right? And she came into the booth and was talking to you know, my salesman and she's holding him and going, no, these would never work for us. No, we have, you know, slush and we have wetness and these look too delicate. And, and, and I just like went, you know, I snapped and I just sort of walked calmly over and I said, excuse me, ma'am, would, would you mind taking your shoe off and trying one of these on? Oh, no, 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 I don't need to do that. You know, I can see how warm they are. And, and I said, ma'am, please just do me a favor. And she's wearing a pair of Reeboks, right? So she took them off and had bare feet and, and I had to put an Ugg boot on and I heard the most common thing I always hear from people putting Ugg boots on for the first time, right? It was, oh, my God. And she goes, these are the most comfortable things I've ever had on my feet. Man, I could put these in the after-ski department. And she ended up buying like 20 pairs for 15 stores, like 300. That was more than like our previous year's sales almost, right? And I realized then how powerful it was. Uh, and so from then on, all of my sales force, when they went out on the road, they were not allowed to start selling until the – the, the, the recipient had tried a pair on and that was by far the biggest marketing thing or it was like an aha right but it was an observation that I turned from a negative into a positive and then but I mean I couldn't keep boots in in the warehouse for years after that it's such a great story because it really speaks to the power of experiencing something yep. To know its value. And I think car salesmen know this. They, you just can't come to the showroom and look at a car. They want you to get in it. They Absolutely. want you to drive it because then they know you're going to fall in love with it in a different yeah. way than if you just looked at it. So it's the same principle or concept. Identical, yeah. Yeah. And I think what's different is because you're coming to the U.S. market where people were not familiar with the product. This was even right. more necessary than in Australia. Everybody knew what it was like in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the awareness was a complete 180. Yeah. Yeah. So these are wonderful, wonderful uh, lessons that you've learned along the way about what works and what to do. So let me ask a maybe oddball question. And that is. You've learned over the years a tremendous amount, okay? Take the wisdom that you have now and today and imagine that you were dropping yourself back into 1978 when you were starting the company. What might you do a little bit differently? Same conditions as back then, but a little bit different than you did do because of the wisdom you now have. Yeah, well, definitely... With the wisdom I have now, I would have understand the cycle of manufacturing and the need for good financial forecasting, right? Because instead of just saying, oh, I've just bought a thousand pairs, I'm going to double my money, you know, not understanding the ramifications of having to pay the cost of the product back and, and marketing and advertising, I would have handled it differently and got a much bigger investor in from the beginning where I didn't have to keep diluting myself down and down and down and down and down. Now, having said that, had I done that, I probably might have ended up having a more secure business, but I probably would have still only end, owned 10 or 15% at the end, whereas the way I, you know, the route I took, I ended up 100%. <laughs> so, so you can't really go back and do things any different. I learned the biggest lesson which is about time right time is is relative like when you don't have goals and you don't know what you're going to do you got all the time in the world like all that time i was traveling around perth wondering what am i going to do with my life i i had so much time i just you know didn't know what to do with it but when i got to america and then i found oh my god there's no sheepskin boots in america that type of time disappeared instantly and now I don't have time. Oh my God, I need I need suppliers. I need to get a trademark 
you know, lawyer, oh, I need to, you know, how do, do I get an office? How do I advertise you? So, so suddenly there was no time, right? And so I had to really, really, um, and, and this is normal for, for, you know, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, which I was, right? And that's when you build and you, you secure assets and then you make yourself steady and reliable. Um, and then once you've done that and you, you got, get to sell the business, then, there's a different type of time takes over and this is what what i call the most valuable time and and i this is a societal thing that i want to talk about really quickly is that i have come to find that that unselfish loving has become a very high priority for me right and and it's because where we i'm seeing the divisiveness and the the vitriol and the 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 separation that's going on in, in media and people and you know I don't follow Facebook, but I hear all about the, you know, the bad stuff there. And we've been sort of driven against each other. Whereas if you looked at 90% of each one of us, we're identical. Our ideas are be the same. And I'm talking, you could be a Muslim, you could be a Christian, you could be a Hindu, you could be whatever, you know. If you got them all together and said, well, okay, what do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe? 90% would be the same, the same values, but the media has got us fighting about the last 10%. And so what I'd, you know, I'd really like to do and what I'm trying to do is, you know, one day just try and get to know somebody a little better because once you know them better and you figure out where they're coming from, your attitude sort of slowly changes and and you go oh my god you know you're really close to me on these values you know that's and, and eventually you start liking people more so i just hope that this uh whole media thing that we have going now which is it, it's it's come on to us so fast that we haven't had the emotional skills to keep it in proportion and so i'm hoping that over the next 10 20 years we get the emotional intelligence to sort of balance out that so, you know, people can use the uh, internet and information in a really positive way. So that that's my prayer and my hope for the planet. Well, you, you're really talking about building into people and it's such an important aspect. You're sharing this journey. Your book is uh, The Birth of a Brand. This is an excellent book, by the way, I want to tell people. I've been reading it. I love it. It's a fun and an engaging and enjoyable read to just hear the story of another business. And as a business person myself, it's very interesting to me to really hear about your journey. So I want you to tell people, we've been talking about the concepts in the book this whole time, but tell them a little bit about why you wrote it and what do you think they'll get out of it? Who is it for? It's for Basically, it's a, an entrepreneurial roadmap. And so if you're in business or you've been in business, um, you'll, if you've been in business, you'll recognize pretty much everything in the book and go, Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Right. But if you're a beginning entrepreneur, there are a huge number of steps on, you know, things to look, look out for and avoid and, and what happens if you get into a situation like this. So most of my friends and people tell me it's, it's a page turner. And it is. It's because at the end of every chapter, you're never sure I'm going to be around the following chapter, right? <laughs> and I deliver—I deliberately wrote it that way, so it's like a—it's like a TV series. At the end of each episode, it's oh my God, what can he survive this, right? And it's a really fun book in that respect. But there's tremendous amount of philosophy and a tremendous amount of my sort of growing spirituality that that comes through that will make you understand how to withstand some of the horrible things that, especially the isolation. When you're an entrepreneur, you can get very isolated and think you're the only person in the world that has these problems. And I, I try to explain, hey, you're not Robinson Crusoe, right? This has all been done before. And, and I, I give ways how to, to move out and, and, and establish, you know, contacts, how to, get, get like-minded people to do it. 
And I think that's really the key too, is finding the like-minded people and recognizing that no matter what the setback is, it can be a stepping stone to continue where you're going. Because I right. know, as I was reading about that one competitor, the the woman competitor, I'm like, my gosh, how are they going to get out of this? You know, what's <laughs> going to happen? And and I think that in business, there are things we run into where you wonder, am I going to, you know, live the next day? You know, that's a, that's very true. Story. That happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. So I think if nothing else, it's the encouragement that that is just the pathway. And yeah. it's the pathway that most people take. And you will make it you know, through the gates and out to the other side. And, right. and and you have very specific, I asked you about certain things like, you know, whether it's be competitors or the marketing and so on and so forth. But there are so many, um, how would I say, challenges that you unpack that we all can learn from. And, and in my case, I've been in business for myself in this particular business almost 30 years. So I can also look back and have my own stories. Oh, yeah, I remember when that I'm happened. Sure you can. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that's why I said I see the book as being relevant for those who are seasoned as well as for those who are just starting out. Either one, you know, can really uh, it can make a difference. Now, Brian, you also do keynote speeches and speaking for different organizations. Tell us about that. Who do you speak for? What kinds of things do you talk about? Sure. I've got a wide range of uh, clients. I have uh, YPO and EO, you know, the entrepreneur organizations. Uh I do a lot for them. I've got several uh, consulting companies who um, have like networking groups that they bring together, and I, I speak at you know some of the bigger events for those people. Corporations, especially finance corporations, uh, a lot of financial people uh, enjoy my stories because they're usually the ones financing all the entrepreneurs, and it's good for them to see the uh, stories come back from the opposite direction of all the problems they're having trying to manage entrepreneurs and they see firsthand what it takes the, for the entrepreneur to go through. So, so finance, financing companies are, are really good. And, um, you know, I've spoken at, at you know, a diverse array of, of manufacturing companies and, and sales and marketing like companies that make shirts, branded shirts for stuff. And so, uh, it's it's everybody loves the stories that I talk about, and I tailor them to the event you know where I'm speaking. So, I I really love speaking from the stage because I, I I'm you know really good at it, and and I I tell stories. I don't just have a bunch of charts and you know you know pop ch you know, charts and shit. Like that. I don't have anything like that, and uh, I just try and keep it full of stories and and. Uh, you know, basically entertain the audience, but give them really, really good takeaways uh, as I do so. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure it's it's like having the living book, if you will, right there yeah. Yeah. as you're sharing the different stories. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they reach you if they want to book you for an engagement? How can they get a hold of the book? That, those sorts of things. Sure. The book's available on Amazon. It's called The Birth of a Brand. And then for reaching me uh, for speaking, uh, my website is briansmithspeaker.com. And so you'll find at the end of that, there's my email address, brian at briansmithspeaker.com. And I would love to field your inquiries and, and discuss whether I can uh, be available to come and talk because I, that really is the, the, the most fun I get out of my life right now. You know, I want to say thank you and really appreciate you for just being willing to share your journey and help the others who are coming behind you. That is such an important role and not everybody's willing to do it. So let me just applaud you, you thank know, you. just to begin with. Yeah. And then let me ask you too, before we close down, just in a brief way, share with us what happened with the company because you eventually sold it. Tell yeah. us about that and how the company's doing now, what's happening now. Sure, sure. After I got the company back, I refinanced it in a better way and was able to build it up to about 15 million in sales. And then we just put the new product line out in January and it was like taking off. And, and I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to be 25 million next year. And I knew that I had no way to finance that growth 
I, I just knew I didn't have the skill to do it. And it was probably just going to implode. And I met a guy along the way, you know, when we, when we were selling in the surf shops in the very early days, and he had a, a product called Tiva Sandals. And when Tiva, the outdoor market, took off, he went public with that. And so, you know, public company had about 28 to $30 million in the bank free. And I was heading to, to a big trade show in Atlanta and I saw Doug at the other end of the baggage claim at the airport and I just got this massive dose of goosebumps again, which again is my, my outer intuition telling me, oh, my God. And I thought, oh, my God, he's got 28, 30 million in the bank. His company dies every winter. Our company dies every summer. Let's put them together. And so we walked up and we high-fived each other and said, Doug, if ever we're going to do this, now's the time. And so I was able to, you know, th that afternoon the accountants started talking to each other back in California and like eight or nine months later we consummated the sale. So we sold out 100% to Decker's Corporation. And, and a lot of people ask me, well, Brian, it's gone into the billions now, right? Don't, don't you regret that? And I, and I think back and I go, well, two things. Number one, I, I'm not the right guy to take it into the billions, right? I love the entrepreneurial uncertainty and free-flowing, you know, chaos. That's, that's my wheelhouse, right? I can't stand being in a board meeting at a public company, just, and, and I've been there, right? And the other part of it is that, you know, when you think you can't give birth to adults, right? I'd conceived of the idea of ARG. I'd got the first six pairs of samples. That was the birth. I'd been through the infancy and it didn't move for like three or four years. And then I got it toddling and then I got it into the youth and that was starting to go really, we, we were getting nationwide in the youth. And now we were hitting the teenage years and that's when the big money comes in, you know, we're looking at, you know, going from 15 to 25 million. That's teenage stuff, right? It's chaotic, right? And I knew that if I didn't sell it, then that it would probably implode. So I just imagined myself walking my baby down the aisle at a wedding and handing her off to Decker's Outdoor Corporation, who would then go out into the world and take it, you know, into the billions. And that's sort of, how I look at it. So it's, it, I, I never regret for one day uh, having sold the company. That's a great story too, just to talk about reasons to sell so the business can continue to grow and recognizing when you've taken it as far as you can take it with the skills and the abilities that God has given you. So that's important for people to know as well. What's your final maybe a word of wisdom that you want to leave for my community of executive business leaders, those who may be in the corporate boardrooms, sure. what would you say to them? Sure. Well, I'd like to close with my favorite piece of philosophy. And it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur struggling in the early stages, the middle stages, or if you're in an established business on the corporate ladder, We've all got this issue of time that we're dealing with. Like, I, I should be more. I should be this. I should be that. Why is that person there in front of me? You know, and how do I overcome these? You know? So my best piece of philosophy I can give, and it works in every situation, and not just business, it works at home as well, right? And that is the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is to live every day happily as a tadpole. Right, the, you cannot change the future; it hasn't come yet. The past is done, but if you can manage to live in the now and enjoy, and the the most important word there is happily, you must live happily as a tadpole. If you can do that, then the march of time just works in your favor. It, it's it's uncanny, but it just works in your favor. So if you can hold that attitude and just keep doing the best you can every single day. That's the that's the secret to a happy life. Well, that's an important secret. And thank you so much, Brian, for being here with me today and sharing multiple secrets 
uh, with my community. And I want to let you know, I do have a pair of Ugg boots and I am very much not in the typical demographic because I like fancy kind of like, you know, New York fashion kind of stuff. Uh, I bought them because they were natural sheepskin and I hate synthetics. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and I love them for the cold weather that we have here in Colorado. And I wear them with my stocking skirts and dresses anyway. So just want you. you to know. Thanks for that. That's great. <laughs> So anyway, as we close today, I just want to share a couple verses, and this is from Proverbs, the 19th chapter, verses 20 to 21, and it says, Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.